We've been preaching about godliness for the last, this is the third week. And uh, last week, the verse uh, that we were looking at thematically was to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And we're going to continue with that this morning. My family has made a habit of noticing slogans on church signs and marquees. Have any of you guys ever read signs and kind of looked for what they would say? Uh, We made a habit of that and still do somewhat, and we get a kick out of what some churches are willing to put up as advertising. Uh, Just as an example, you see sometimes the uh, seven days without prayer makes one week, W-E-A-K. Have you seen that one? Or this church has prayer conditioning. Have you seen that one? What's your favorite, Ben? God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. Okay. Well, the most common one we ever find is the one that just has the letters CH slash slash or underscore underscore and then CH. And then under those letters and underscores, the words what's missing question mark. And then underneath the what's missing, the letters you are, you are. Okay, that's the most common one that we see. In fact, there's actually a church in southern Indiana that has this slogan on a permanent sign, it's, uh, it's like carved wood. And uh, ever since we've, we've done this as a family, I've, I've spent time thinking about what's missing in the church. Ever since I've started thinking about that slogan and I stopped just being amused by some of the things, I've started thinking about what's missing in the church. And among the things that occur to me that are missing in the church is one major component, and that is the component of godliness. And that's part of the reason why we've been talking about this so much in the last few weeks. Uh, Godliness. If you look at the church global, if you look at the church in America, there is evidence that the church is lacking in godliness. And so that's why we've been preaching about this and trying to see what the Scripture has to say. Last week we looked at Paul's charge to Timothy that he fight the good fight of faith. And this week I want to speak more specifically about this spiritual war and the role that godliness plays in the battle of it. Why is it so important that we make the connection between godliness and the spiritual battle in which we are engaged? Well, in the text that we've looked at in the last two weeks... Thank you, John. Thanks, brother. In the text that we've looked at in the last two weeks, we see that godliness is understood to be an internal working with an external demonstration. Uh, we, We see in those texts that the external demonstration is generally manifested differently, as Tim preached about godliness in women on Mother's Day. Women demonstrate godliness externally, primarily by their modesty, discretion, good works, and trust in God in their fulfillment of their roles as women, the nurture and care of families particularly. 
Men demonstrate godliness by living without wrath and dissension and trust in God in the fulfillment of their roles as men by spiritual and physical provision and protection of those that they are given charge of. The Bible says that the external demonstration of godliness promises to elicit a response from all who witness it. People who see godliness are going to have a response. And we're going to look at some of those things in a moment. The internal working, the external demonstration, and the response from the world are all points of specific spiritual conflict in our lives. They are the battlefield on which the spiritual war is fought. In order to fight this battle, we must cultivate a diligent awareness of the conflict. This is what it means to know our enemy, to know who is our enemy. We certainly have an enemy in Satan. 1 Peter 5, 7 and 9 says that we're to be sober of spirit, that we're to be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Satan and his demons are certainly our enemy. Satan's spiritual slaves, unbelieving people that are unaware that they are engaged in a conflict. Their eyes are blind to spiritual truth. They live as slaves to Satan. Are the lost people of the world enemies of Christians? Have you thought about this question? Are the lost people of the world, unsaved people, enemies of Christians? It gives you a kind of yucky feeling to think of that, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you feel a little yucky to think that lost people are enemies to Christians? That your mother or father or cousin or perhaps your child, your co-worker or your neighbor may be enemies to Christians and you're a Christian? But the Bible does talk about the lost being enemies to Christ. And we, we belong to Christ. We are in Christ. And so there's a reality in which lost people are enemies to Christians. Remember, however, that you were once an enemy to Christ. Remember that enemies may one day be companions in Christ by God's grace. Remember how we're instructed by Jesus to treat our enemies. Love your enemy. Pray for the one who persecutes you. There are also pretenders to the faith. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. In verse 18, he says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's talking about people who call themselves Christians, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Sometimes we can be our own enemies, because our own hearts work against us. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be anyone, uh, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another today, as, another day by day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a real enemy. But what is our awareness of the spiritual battle that we're in? Recently, I heard a commercial on the radio advertising a certain cancer care center. And 
If you're like me and you hear cancer, you hear cancer. Do you hear cancer? You know what I'm saying? You don't hear cancer like he's got a cold, do you? You hear cancer. And I heard this advertisement for this cancer care center, and the entire theme of the commercial was militant. The cancer patient is at war. The enemy is the cancer. The allies are the oncologists, the treatment centers. There is great hope for victory. And this made me think of the process that people go through that just first discover that they have something like cancer, something very dangerous physically. And, of course, they go through those, those stages. You know the stages people go through, denial, um, bargaining, anger, and acceptance. You've heard those things before. Well, some people have an immediate awareness of the threat to them, and they begin to mount a rigorous counterattack against the disease. So instantly upon hearing that they have a disease like this, they, they work to fight it. And other people live for a long while in denial of the threat. And there are still others who establish themselves in permanent denial, going on as if nothing is different, as if there's no enemy to their body. I had an uncle that was like this. And so a lot of times they'll refuse treatment. They'll just go on as if, as if nothing's going on. When you get cancer, you have an immediate awareness of something that is a threat to you, right? There's the moment before you got cancer, before you got the call from the oncologist, and there's the moment after you got the call. And what's the difference? You know, you perceive that you are at war, that there is a threat to you. But how about Christians in understanding the war that we are in spiritually? How often do people professing to be Christians and even whole churches live in denial of spiritual conflict? And how often do we cultivate ignorance? You know, the story about the ostrich burying its head in the sand. They really don't do that. When the predator comes around, they just lower their head. But we get this, this saying of he buried his head in the sand, and it's, it's come to mean that we've refused to acknowledge or confront a problem. And how often as churches and Christians do we refuse to acknowledge that we are engaged in a spiritual war, not seeing what's happening in our lives? Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. A spiritual battle that we're engaged in. And it's not an intermittent battle. There have been no skipped centuries, no skipped years, months, days, or even hours where the battle has not been waging. There have been no skipped countries, no skipped states, cities, neighborhoods, or homes where this battle has not been waging, the spiritual battle for souls. It is a battle for your soul, for your family, for the church. It's a battle over the kingdom of God and Satan.
will be conflicts and campaigns. There will be casualties. There will be traitors. There will be infiltrators. There will be victories. There will be training exercises, weapons, joys, sorrows. All the things that attend battle will be there. There are two sides to the battle. One has the goal of life and the other has the goal of death. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Galatians 1, 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And yet we go through the days of our lives with no thought to what's happening spiritually around us. What if we saw the danger for what it really was? like the wake-up call from the oncologist giving us our test results. What if we saw the wake-up call that all around us here, in this room, in each seat that's occupied, there is a battle being fought. That's how real the battle, the spiritual battle that we're in is. Do you see the danger do you believe you are a soldier who is at war? Is your head out of the sand? Are you awake or are you napping? We must cultivate a diligent awareness of the conflict. In order to fight this battle, we must be tapped into the source of power for our waging of the war. We talked about this source of power last week as it's revealed in Second Peter chapter 1. Seeing that his divine power, that is the divine power of Jesus, our Lord, has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We see that the power for godliness is divinely supplied and that is conducted to us through the true knowledge of him who called us. The true knowledge as it talks about here, simply means the correct knowledge. Last week, I talked about uh, the godly man needing to be doctrinal. It could be uh, that perhaps you didn't understand at the time what I was saying, but simply put, the godly man must be well acquainted with the correct knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Who is Jesus? What did he say? Who is God? How are we saved? What is faith and grace and repentance? The true knowledge, the true knowledge of his glory and excellence. There is also a false knowledge disguised by having a form of godliness, and I spoke briefly about this last week. It has a form of godliness. It has some type of external demonstration, but it really has no access to the power of God. And so there are men, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, who go around and they are deceivers and they hold to a form of godliness, but they've denied the power of this godliness and we're supposed to avoid them. How do you go about telling the false from the true? How do you tell the godly man 
from the pretender. Well, the pretenders seem to use the same language as the authentic quite often. This is where it is so important that we are familiar with the correct knowledge of Jesus and that we have the practice of discernment to us. It's indispensable that we are able to discern so that we know the difference. After, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about these pretenders who have a form of godliness, he goes on to tell Timothy, he said, You have followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me in Antioch. And he goes on and he says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then he goes on and he says, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And then he talks about the sacred scriptures that have instructed Timothy in his life. How can we distinguish the false from the true? Paul says to Timothy, you have the example of men who have proven themselves to be true. You have the conviction of your training. You have the knowledge of the scriptures. And he says, if that isn't enough, you have an external indicator that will give you a pretty good idea. And he says, you see that truly godly men will be persecuted. They will be opposed. The pretenders won't put up with the opposition. A few months ago, one of our members who's not here this morning, Abram Hess, wrote a letter to the Indiana Daily Student, who was a, uh, an article on the question of foster care and sodomite adoption. And as he wrote it, he wrote it from someone who was familiar with a household that had used foster care, and he was, of course, opposing the question of having homosexuals adopt children. And after he presented this letter, sometime after he presented this letter to the editor, someone, if some of you may know, someone took some kind of white paint or something and they wrote across the windshield of his car, homophobe. And then he came to his car and then he had to drive around for a while till he could find something that would get it off. Okay. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that's not a verse we see quite often in our precious Bible promise books, is it? Have you seen that one in your precious Bible promise books, you know, with the little precious moments characters on the front? How about Matthew 24, verse 9, and they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. How about John 15, verse 18 through 20? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Is that in the promise book? How about 1 John 3, verse 12 and 13? Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. When we are engaged in the conflict, when we are godly, we will be persecuted. And when we are persecuted, we will run to Christ, who is the source of our power. And tapped into this source, we will be able to wage the war we have to wage. In order to fight this battle, we must be familiar with our weapons and the weapons of the enemy. Ephesians 6 goes on to say that we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and that we're to put on the full armor of God so that we can oppose the schemes of the devil. 
And he goes on and talks about truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God and prayer. And while these concepts or truths are analogized in the text by armor, they are not physical tools. They are spiritual. We often try to fight this battle physically. We think if we have the right politicians in office, we'll be able to end abortion. If we have the right Supreme Court justices, we'll be able to end abortion. If the Ten Commandments are hanging in the courthouse, then we will have a talisman against evil to to ward it off from us for the next few years. If we legalize prayer in schools, that will do the trick. If our cable TV personality, television show, uh, holy beamer person is better than their cable TV show, more entertaining personality, then we'll be able to win in this process. The Crusades are a good example. I always uh, remember a cartoon I saw one time. It has a crusader on his horse with his lance pointing down at the ground, and here's a, a moor on the ground looking up with the lance in his face. And the moor looks up at the crusader and he says, Tell me more about this Christianity of yours. I'm terribly interested. Always trying to use ways that are not spiritual but are physical to bring about victory. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a spiritual battle. We have spiritual weapons that are powerful against our enemy. What about the flaming arrows of the evil one? Again, the weapons are not terrestrial because the conflict is not physical, it is spiritual. They're not literal flaming arrows. We don't fight against flesh and blood. Well, you might say, well, the writing on Abram's windshield was physical. And I would reply, the true assault on Abram occurred when he wrote the piece and submitted it. It was then, when he was writing the piece and submitting the piece, that he experienced temptations we would all be familiar with if we were disciplined in godliness. He may have experienced some temptations when he found his car vandalized. But they were still temptations to his faith and his soul. They were still spiritual. The riding on a car, a beating with a stick, even a lion's mouth, these are not what we fight. We fight the temptations that would cause us to fear these things more than God, to love this life rather than to lose it for the one that can never be lost. These are the flaming arrows of the evil one. These are what are extinguished as they impact against God's grace to us in our faith. What temptations call you away from godliness? Do you have fear of man? Do you have fear of losing your comfort? Do you have fear of the enemy? Do you have pride? We must be familiar with our weapons and with the weapons of the enemy. 
In order to fight this battle, we must determine never to negotiate with the enemy. Or you could put this another way. We must determine that we are going to use our offense. The history of Christianity is littered with examples of deals men have made, men have tried to make with the devil. And why would I say that to determine never to negotiate is to put another, is put another way the use of our offense? Well, that's because most of the deals that we make with the devil boil down to one basic offer, and that is this. I'll agree not to expose you if you agree not to persecute me. That's the deal we always make. I was talking with my wife this week about this negotiation and the negotiation we try to make with the devil, and she immediately perceived what most people's objection would be. The objection is never that that we don't want to negotiate with the devil. Everybody says, well, no, we don't want to negotiate with the devil. But that's not how we phrase the objection. She told me what people would say. She said, we're not in a time of persecution now. Don't you think we'd just be bringing persecution upon ourselves unnecessarily? That's what she said people would say in bringing this out, that we have to be offensive. She saw this because she has had Christians tell her not to rock the boat and not to swim against the current. And you probably have had Christians tell you that as well. Do you see how negotiation is present in the question that she phrased? We're not in persecution. Why disturb the enemy? If we don't bother him, he won't bother us. And that's the negotiation that we make. If we don't expose you, you agree not to persecute us. God doesn't call us to persecution. God does not call us to persecution. He calls us to godliness. 1 Timothy 6:11 Flee from these things, these evil things that are listed before you man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. Titus 2 Verse 12, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We are supposed to pursue godliness. The outcome of godliness is that in this world, the godly will be persecuted. That's the outcome. I know that there are ebbs and flows to dramatic global persecution of the church. I know that that's a reality. That's a reality you see in the New Testament. However, there is the normal persecution associated with the promise. The promise is that those who are godly in Christ in this life will be persecuted. Why is this so rarely evident? Are we operating as godly people? Are churches godly? Is evangelicalism in America godly? Are we ungodly? Why will we be persecuted? Will people be offended by our dress? If I dress modestly, will that be an offense to people? If I don't use profanity, will that offend people? If I don't cheat on my taxes, will that offend people? If I'm being a moral person, will they be offended by me? Is that what causes the offense? For the most part, there's tolerance of morality. In fact, there is a, a kind of a generally accepted morality all around us. Even between religions, there is a generally accepted morality. The problem is when 
this is challenged. If you're if you're looking at a person who's self-righteous and you say, you know, you're self-righteous, that won't get you to heaven. Only faith in Jesus Christ will get you to heaven and you will have no righteousness but his. Your righteousness, even though you know you're you're being very moral, your righteousness isn't righteousness at all. Or you turn to the person who's ungodly and you challenge their immorality. Do we have a command in Scripture to challenge immorality, to expose self-righteous morality? Can't we just go around and commit random acts of kindness? Wouldn't that take care of things? Does the external demonstration of godliness include the exposure of ungodliness? The answer is yes, absolutely. Ephesians 5 said that we are to be imitators of God and that we're to walk in love and that we're not to let anyone deceive us with empty words, that we're not to be partakers with them because we were formerly in darkness that we're to try to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, and that we're, in verse 11, not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead we are to expose them. Expose them. We're to be careful how we walk, making the most of our time, because the days are evil. That's what it says. We're to imitate God, were to be prophetic, as Jesus was. This is pretty heavy. Yes, it is. This is discipleship. This is Christianity. If you're here this morning and you're not at war, then you're a captive. If you're here this morning and you're not participating in a battle, against darkness, then you're a captive of darkness. There were a lot of circumstances that brought me to begin to study this issue of godliness. A lot of it had to do with a desire for power in my own life. But I began to see that there is supposed to be a resident power in God's church and his people. And that that power is something that comes and abides with us. It rests on us. It brings us joy, actually brings us joy as we are godly and obedient to him. Last week I talked about contentment as a fruit of godliness, and that's partly what I mean by this resident joy. John 15 says, Jesus is talking, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be be made full. Godliness is a means of grace. In godliness we receive joy and power. It's not just what we're supposed to do. It is a means by which God gives us his blessings. 
And it's a means by which he demonstrates his holiness. And it's a means by which he calls men to himself. Think about the disciples in Acts 5. They had been preaching and they got arrested and they were hauled in before the religious leaders. And the religious leaders called them in and it says in verse 40, they flogged them, they beat them. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they released them. And it says in verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I'm not sure how Abram felt when he, he had his windshield vandalized. But a response of a believer is to rejoice. There is joy in godliness. That's the response that believers are supposed to have. James 1 Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Matthew 5, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Godliness. The savor of the church, the brilliance of the light of truth and righteousness, our ability to go into the world and effect the world as salt and light is absolutely connected to godliness absolutely connected to the battle that we fight. What's missing in the church? What's missing in the church? What's missing in the church are godly people. And we need to pursue godliness. And I want to challenge you this morning, if you're a believer, to pursue godliness deliberately, deliberately, with all that it entails. And when you have persecution, I want you to rejoice that you have had, had the privilege of being associated with Jesus and have the power of God working through your lives. I want you to exercise, and I want you to challenge me to exercise myself in godliness. Let's pray. Father in heaven.